Good evening, ASI. It's good to see you all. When I stood here in front of you a year ago, I was your secretary treasurer. But sometimes God works in mysterious ways that we don't pretend to understand. I don't pretend to understand, but we feel, Debbie and I, feel like we followed the Lord's leading. Debbie and I still count you all as family. And Dan Houghton told me that uh, once you're blood with ASI, you're always family. So I hope I can still count you as family. Okay, we'll use that. Wonderful. You know, folks, I want to ask for your prayers for It Is Written Canada. It Is Written Canada, the ministry that I am now leading, is uniquely poised to do something that many media ministries do not have the opportunity to do. It Is Written Canada has secured a contract with CTV, which is the equivalent of ABC or NBC or CBS here in the States, and we secured that contract, and in securing that contract, we have access to 98% of the homes of the 40 million Canadians. Just before I left to, uh, on our camp meeting circuit, our negotiator called me and in something that is absolutely unprecedented, CTV, as we negotiated, raised our rate per week by 0%, which is unheard of. Jesus is leading this ministry, and I would just ask that you keep us in prayer. We have been also uniquely positioned through the studio that we rent, that our set is permanently set up in this studio that we can record current items. And we have recently recorded a series on Noah, addressing the movie that had little to do with Noah and little to do with the real character of God. We were able to film a series on Is Heaven for Real, again, addressing this recent movie that came out. Friends, we have plans for a, a studio in our office, and in that studio, we are going to be able to do live programming. We're also going to do live lay training and then continued networking of that lay training. And so, friends, I just want to ask that you keep our ministry in prayer I'd encourage you to stop by booth 600B to learn more, and you can also receive a free sampler DVD of our three series that we've done together. If you don't mind, I'd just like to have a word of prayer once again as we start. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to come and to be a part of this movement of destiny that you have called forth. Tonight, as we spend some time in Your Word, Lord, we know that Your Word is truth. And so we pray for Your Spirit to lead us into all truth. Convict us of sin, convict us of righteousness, and convict us of the judgment to come. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The title of the message this evening is, Why Adventist? Why Now? And as I prayed about ASI 2014, wondering what is the message for these folks of ASI, I believe the Lord led me to the answer, and that is to the relevance of the Seventh-day Adventist Church in the 21st century. See, friends, we are in a culture, we are in a society that is comforted in denominationalism, and many have simply relegated Seventh-day Adventism to just another denomination, just another choice. 
They say we are just one option among the many options of the crowded environment of Christianity. In fact, the World Christian Encyclopedia says that there are 38,000 Christian denominations. In fact, in some realms, there has been an attempt to make Seventh-day Adventism look, sound, worship, and train like everyone else. And in so doing, in many circles, the Seventh-day Adventist church has simply been dismissed into the realm of irrelevance and insignificance. So the question we must ask is, why Adventist? Why now? Is Adventism relevant today? And so I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation, the 12th chapter, excuse me, Daniel, the 12th chapter. And there in Daniel, the cha- 12th chapter, in verses 5 to 10, there are verses that you're familiar with. This is what Daniel wrote Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one on this riverbank and the other on that riverbank. And one said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Then I heard a man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven, and swore by him who lives forever that it shall be for a time, times, and a half a time. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. Although I heard, I did not understand. Then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified, many excuse me, many shall be purified, made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand. But the wise shall understand. Friends, I want you to take notice as we look here at this portion of Daniel, Daniel is instructed to seal up the book. He's instructed to seal up the book. Now, let me ask you a question. This is ASI, so I know you know the answers. Is the entire book of Daniel sealed? No. Did Daniel understand Daniel chapter 2? Of course he understood Daniel chapter 2. Did Daniel understand Daniel chapter 7? Of course he understood Daniel chapter 7. Did he understand a portion of Daniel chapter 8? He did, in fact, because the angel explained it to him, and Daniel understood portions of Daniel chapter 9. But what is it that Daniel specifically did not understand as he was given vision? That vision of the 2300 days. In fact, in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 27, Daniel reacts, and what does he say? I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and I went about the king's business, and I was astonished by the vision but no one understood it. This word astonished in the Hebrew literally means to be desolate or appalled. He didn't understand the vision of the 2300 days, and God in His grace and mercy did not reveal to Daniel the answer of the 2300 days because had he, Daniel would likely have been overwhelmed. So Daniel looked for explanation, but he did not have it. But God in his great mercy gave Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, when Daniel prayed, O Lord, when will you deliver us from Babylon? And God told him when he would deliver them from sin and the the permanent deliverance of the coming Messiah. But Daniel, as he's standing and closing out this book, the angel tells him that he needs to seal up that book. He needs to seal up that book until the time of the end. 
And then the angel explains to him when the time of the end will be. It will be after a time, times, and a half a time. And I know I'm at ASI, and so I'm moving quite quickly, but I think you know this, and I think you understand this. How long's the time? One year, right? 360 days. Two and a times is two years, 720 days, a half a time, 180 days, adding that all together, 1,260 days. The angel tells Daniel that this prophecy is for the time of the end, and we know that the 1,260-day prophecy began in 538, which means somewhere around 1798, the time of the end would begin, and the unsealing of the book of Daniel would happen. And so while I'm sure Daniel was disappointed because he wanted to know in faith, he allowed Jesus to lead and placed his faith in him and his trust in him. And so you question, what does this have to do with anything? Well, fast forward about 600 years. The apostle John sat on that rocky island called Patmos. And in Revelation, the 10th chapter, God would give an answer to the unsealing of the book of Daniel. Revelation, the 10th chapter, is what they call in the commentaries an interlude between the 6th and the 7th trumpet. The seven trumpets are, in, are one in a series of three sevens. The seven churches, the seven seals, the seven trumpets. Seven churches, the spiritual condition of the church. The seven seals, God's judgment on the church. The seven trumpets, Satan's attack on the church. But let's read here in Revelation, the 10th chapter, beginning in verse 1. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud. And a rainbow was on his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. The angel who I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, the sea and the things that are in it that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. Friends, as we read this, and as John would have heard these words, John undoubtedly was a student of the Bible. John undoubtedly was a student of Bible prophecy. And as soon as he would have seen this in vision, all of a sudden it would trigger in his mind. And his mind would be brought back to where? Right back to Daniel chapter 12. Because there Daniel, excuse me, John would see. He would see that there was an angel. He would see this right hand to heaven. He would see an angel swearing and he would see the, swearing by a name, and he would see this angel saying that there would be delay no longer. The word delay in Greek is the word chronos in the Greek. It's from where we get the English word chronology. This angel is instructing John 
that chronological consecutive time is about to run its course. In other words, the prophetic time given is about to run its course. And in a reenactment, in vision, John is about to be revealed the unsealing of the book of Daniel and what would happen when the book of Daniel was unsealed. See, the concern of the angel is time and the opening of the little book. All of these allusions point to the fact that this angel is instructing John by that little sealed book from the book of Daniel. And we already know from the book of Daniel that this unsealing of the book of Daniel would happen somewhere after the 1260-day prophecy, somewhere after 1798. And if you don't understand the 1260-day prophecy, you stop by one of our many media ministry booths. You talk to my friend Sean Boonstra. You come talk to me. You go talk to Mark Finley or Doug Batchelor. John Bradshaw will help you with that 1260 days as well as, and I left out ministries, and somebody's going to come to me and say, well, I could explain it too. There's many who could explain it. But if you don't understand that, come find one of us and we'll help you through that. But friends, sometime after 1798, we should expect to see the book of Daniel being opened up, specifically Daniel chapter 8 and the 2300-day prophecy. Are you all following me this evening? And what happens, friends, as... What happens in this experiencing of the opening of the book? In Revelation 10 and verse 8, it says, Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and I said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it. And it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. That word sweet in the Greek is the word gluku from where we get the word glucose. This is a pure sugar taste that John is having in his mouth. It's sweet. Sweeter than even honey. But then it says it's bitter. Literally, to be undrinkable, to be sour. And it is figuratively used in the Greek often to mean embittered or resentful. So John eats something sweet, but then it's bitter in the stomach. It almost sounds like John is having a case of indigestion. You know, some of us experience that when we go to potluck. It's sweet in the mouth, right? As we, as we fill the plate full. But then after we eat it, we have that regretful moment where we say, oh, I think I ate too much. And as the food continues to fall down into the stomach, you realize, in fact, you did eat too much. And John experiences this indigestive moment because it's sweet in the mouth, but it's bitter in the stomach. And friends, we have to understand, as as the angel is enacting with John this sweet and bitter experience, sometime after 1798, but before the close of probation, the prophecies of Daniel were to be understood and opened, and the experience would be sweet as honey. Well, what's happening in 1798 in the churches all around, especially in the United States and in England and in Europe? The churches were teaching something called post-millennialism. 
Post-millennialism essentially taught the idea that the earth is getting better and better and better, and eventually Jesus will come to reign over his church for a thousand years of utopia. But friends, it just took looking around to realize that the world was not getting better and better. And so on comes the scene, these individuals who have studied the book of Daniel who began teaching premillennialism. And premillennialism teaches that the only fix of the problems on this earth is the Lord Jesus returning in a cataclysmic event. And so all around the world, the book of Daniel begins to be opened up. Johann Petrie in Germany, John Aquila Brown in England, William Cummings Davis in Scotland, Joseph Wolfe, a Jewish Christian who traveled the world, Edward Irving in Scotland and England, William Digby in Ireland, and a little Baptist preacher by the name of William Miller in the United States of America. And they begin preaching and opening up the prophecies of Daniel. And listen to Hiram Edson, how he, how he described the Advent experience as he began to understand Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 9. Hiram Edson said this, I mused in my heart saying, my Advent experience has been the brightest of all my Christian experience. What were they teaching? They began teaching that Jesus was going to come sometime around 1843 or 1844. And people will often say to me, how could they not, how could they ignore the words of Jesus when Jesus said, no man shall know the day or the hour? Friends, they simply explained that by saying that Jesus, when he was here, no one knew the day or the hour. But now that it was for them to know the day and the hour. That's how they got around this. But friends, they were excited because they believed that Jesus was coming back. They believed that Jesus was coming back until eventually in the Advent movement here in the United States, they set a date of October 22, 1844. And they looked forward. They looked forward with great expectation to Jesus coming. And too often we speak of the great disappointment as some merely passing moment. Oh, it was the great disappointment. Friends, I want you to think about all your hope, everything you have, centered and focused on Jesus coming. And you go out sometime in the morning, October 22nd, 1844, and you get your family out in the yard, you gather your children together, and you begin to read the stories. And you begin to go over the prophecies of Daniel. Noon comes. Three o'clock comes. Eight o'clock comes. Ten o'clock comes. And then midnight ticks away. Hiram Edson wrote these words. Our expectations were raised high, and thus we looked for our coming Lord until the clock told twelve at midnight. The day had passed, and our disappointment had become a certainty. Our fondest hopes and expectations were blasted, and such a spirit of weeping came over us as I had never experienced before. It seemed that the loss of all earthly friends could have been no comparison. We wept and wept till the day dawned. 
Has the Bible proved a failure? Is there no God in heaven? No golden city? No paradise? Is all this but a cunningly devised fable? Is there no reality to our fondest hopes and expectations? And then listen to the words of Henry Emmons. I waited all Tuesday, October the 22nd, and dear Jesus did not come. I waited all the forenoon of Wednesday and was well in body as I ever was. But after 12 o'clock, I began to feel faint. And before dark, I needed someone to help me up to my chamber as my natural strength was leaving me very fast. And I lay prostrate for two days without any pain, sick with disappointment. Friend, do you find yourself disappointed? Do you find yourself disappointed? Do you find yourself grief-stricken? There is an answer. And it's the same answer that God gave to John in Revelation 10. Because even though there would be this sweet but bitter, sweet but bitter moment, the prophecy doesn't end there. And friends, we need to read Revelation 10 right into Revelation 11 because chapter and verse division didn't come in John's day. He didn't write that Bible with chapters and verses. And so what does it say there in Revelation chapter 10 and verse 11? And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. And what's the very next words? And I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Where is John taken immediately in the midst of his sour and bitter disappointment? To the temple or to the sanctuary in heaven. Friends, God has an answer for our bitterest disappointments. It is the rise of the remnant people, the rise of the remnant church, the relevance of the remnant church in the 21st century is that the answer to the bitter disappointments of life today is found in the sanctuary. Psalm 77, 13, you know it well. Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? Psalm 73, 16 and 17. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went where? Into the sanctuary. Psalm 63, 2. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see what? Your power and your glory. My friends, the sanctuary is the blueprint. It is the puzzle that puts everything together. The sanctuary ties all the beliefs of the Bible together. It's God's blueprint. And friends, I am telling you right now, there are some who want to give up on the sanctuary. If we give up on the sanctuary, we might as well go become Methodists because the sanctuary is the blueprint for God's answer to today's troubles. The sanctuary... The showbread teaches us that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The lamps teach us that we need the Holy Spirit. The altar of incense tells us that we need that continual dependence upon God through prayer. The mercy seat teaches this, the importance of the judgment, and that God is for us and not against us. The law of God is found in the Ark of the Covenant. Aaron's rod and the importance of proper administration and leadership in the church. The manna is there in the ark and teaches us about our full dependence upon God. 
the priesthood and its teaching about the priesthood of all believers. But above all else, why is the sanctuary key? Why is the sanctuary the answer to the disappointments of life? Paul said it best in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected, and not man. Friends, what's the answer to the bitter disappointments of life today? The ministry of Jesus Christ. Why is it distinctive to the Seventh-day Adventist church and our message? Because friends, why Adventist? Why now? When the mainstream evangelical church teaches about a Jesus who came and a Jesus who died and saved you from your sins so you can keep on going and living like you want to live, The sanctuary message tells us about a Jesus who came, who died, who rose again and is alive and in the sanctuary working on our behalf. And he's not just any high priest. He's one that sympathizes with our needs. He's one that sympathizes with us because he was one of us. Jesus understands. Jesus came and he lived. Jesus is alive, friends. Friends, I've always joked with churches. I've always joked with churches. I've always joked with churches that somebody's playing music. Um, I've always joked with churches. They want to put a cross up, and I say, you know, you know, we don't need a cross. We need a picture of an empty tomb because our hope is in the fact that Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. My friends, it is the message of hope for today. Jesus is actively working in the sanctuary on our behalf right now. In John chapter 12 and verse 32, Jesus said himself, If I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Jesus is alive in the sanctuary, and that, my friends, is good news. The answer to today's problems and challenges of this time are clearly articulated by Jesus. In the midst of the signs of the times, Jesus speaks of wars and rumors of war, nations rising against nations, famines, pestilences, weather phenomena. In the midst of it all, Jesus gives the answer. And what's the answer he gives in Matthew 24, 14? And This gospel will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. This gospel. You know, Paul warned the Galatians that there was another gospel. Jesus warned that there would be false Christs. A false gospel would emerge. And as we study history, we find this group of people called the Gnostics. The word Gnostic comes from the Greek word Gnosticism, and it means knowledge. And see, the Gnostics believed they had a secret knowledge. And so they would come into the churches and they would say, you know, I know what Paul told you, but I have something secret I need to tell you. And friends, I'm, I'm afraid we're facing a version of this in our church today. I'm afraid that we have our own set of ag. Adventist Gnostics. 
They have secret information, secret knowledge. And friends, I don't want to come across as too harsh in what I'm about to say, but I need to say it, friends, because the answer to today's challenges are in Jesus Christ. Friends, not one person has been saved by the knowledge of who sank the Titanic or what secret societies or what the Illuminati are doing. And I know we chuckle in an uncomfortable chuckle, but we're, we, we get really excited about these things because we feel like we've got extra knowledge. We don't need extra knowledge, friends. We need to know Jesus so Jesus can change us and we can change the world. My friends, the message of the gospel is clear and we make it more complicated than it needs to be. Jesus says this gospel What is this gospel or the good news that Jesus came to bring? He told it to Nicodemus that night that Nicodemus came to visit him. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. But we need to read the next part. Verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through through Him might be saved. It's a whole nother sermon. You go to Don McIntosh and David Fiedler's seminar tomorrow, and they're going to talk about this. But that word there, saved in the Greek, it's a special word. It's the Greek word sozo. And it means salvation. And it's translated to be saved. But in other places, it's translated to be made well or to be healed. This gospel that Jesus came to bring is a gospel that has hands and has feet and has a body. See, too often we speak of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, their righteousness by faith, and we speak of it as some theological exercise or some legal incident that happened in heaven. But friends, righteousness by faith needs a person Because Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He came healing, teaching, and preaching. He healed to reach the heart. So then he could change the heart and change the person. Why Adventists? Why now? Because we have been given the unique opportunity to be God's last day messengers. That Jesus is alive in the sanctuary, which is the headquarters of the universe with one mission. And one mission only. To save mankind, providing both physical and spiritual healing. How is it going to be done? In the book Medical Ministry, Ellen White writes these words, My brethren, the Lord calls for unity, for oneness. We are to be one in faith. And I want to tell you when the gospel ministers and the medical missionary workers are not united, there is placed on our churches the worst evil that can be placed there. It is time that we stood upon a united platform. Medical missionary workers, and when we think of medical missionary workers right now, we have an image in our mind. Friends, go and study, because that image that we have is not the image that Ellen White painted. Medical missionary workers were simply people who would go out in the community, find out what the needs were, and meet those needs. Medical missionary workers chopped wood. Medical missionary workers provided clothes. Medical missionary workers provided food. Medical missionary workers provided homes. Just like Jesus did. And in winning their confidence, 
Then Jesus bade them to follow him. In a world of seven billion people, how do we do this? The ninth testimony, page 116. The leaders in God's cause as wise generals are to lay plans for the advance moves along all lines. In their planning, they are to give special study to the work that can be done by the laity for their friends and neighbors. The work of God in this earth, listen to these words, friends, the work of God in this earth can never be finished until the men and women comprising our church membership rally to work and unite their efforts with those of our ministers and our church officers. The laity and the clergy working together. Novel idea, isn't it? Friends, God is calling for us to unite together. God is calling for us to be like the church of Acts that was of one accord. They were united. Literally in the lexicon when they were of one accord. Look it up. It says they were unanimous. They came together and they worked together and they worked through their issues. How can we do this? Zechariah 4, 6 tells us, not by might nor by power, but by, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. Through the workings of the Holy Spirit and the transformation of His people, this gospel will go out to the ends of the earth and a work will be finished. But friends, God is calling for us to unite together, the clergy and the laity to come together, the health work and the gospel work to come together and to bring back together that which was broken so many years ago. And the question simply is for each of us tonight, where will it start? Because too often we look across the aisle, we look to another ministry, we look over there, we look over there. The question must be, when will I change? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 tells us where we ought to be looking. Looking unto Jesus, the, the author and finisher of our faith. We need to stop looking horizontal and start looking vertical. Because Jesus says when He is lifted up, all men, all women, all children will be drawn to Him. Because friends, the day is now that there are only really two choices. See, Revelation chapter 13 and verse 3 says that all the earth wanders after the beast. Friends, the only way to save the world from wandering after the beast is to lift up the real Jesus, to lift up the real Christ so that people can turn their back on the Antichrist. When will we take this counsel? Why Adventists? Why now? The very story of the fulfillment of prophecy of our church is the answer to society today. It is relevant to everyone. My friends, the church, the Adventist church came out of bitter disappointment. And this world that we live in is filled with bitter disappointment. The government has let us down. The world has let us down. Our schools have let us down. Our parents have let us down. Our spouses have let us down. Our children have let us down. Let's bring it a little closer to home. The conference has let us down. The local church leadership has let us down. The pastor has let us down. And lay people have let us down. And friends, the only answer is that we would look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, and we would be converted anew, that we would be united under the power of the Holy Spirit to finish the work that God has called us to. 
friends, oh friends, I want to speak to my pastor friends. When are we going to loosen the reins of power? When are we going to loosen the reins of power and stop taking ourselves too seriously? And I don't say this in a snide way, but when? And lay people, I want to speak to you. When are we going to allow our pastors to do what they have been called to do? Friends, it's a time that we need to come in mutual respect of one another. That we need to unite together. Lay the plans that, are led, that we are led by the Holy Spirit to lay. And go on and finish this work. Friends, we're in a world that is bitterly disappointed. Why Adventists? Why now? Because our church was founded on God's divine appointment that comes in the aftermath of a bitter disappointment. Friends, we often talk about making the church more relevant. I would encourage us to get into the Word and get back to the message that is relevant to this day. Why Adventists? Why now? The message is that of a divinely, prophetically called message of Adventism, of the remnant movement to bring hope to the bitterly disappointed. It is the answer. It is the answer to a world that is bitterly disappointed. Just last year, the General Conference held an urban mission conference. 500 cities in the world with over 1 million in population. The city of Boston has 7.2 million people, but only 8,000 Adventists there. Denver has 3.3 million people, but only 10,000 Adventists. Minneapolis has 2.9 million people and only 6,000 Adventists. San Francisco has 7.2 million people and only 3,600 Adventists. Vancouver, British Columbia has 2.45 million people and 900 Seventh-day Adventists. Friends, when I heard these words, I sat with a pastor friend of mine and I said, this is impossible. This is impossible. How can we finish God's work? And this pastor friend of mine said, it's not us who finishes the work. It is as we yield to the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit can do some amazing things. Friends, we are called to bring the message of hope. We are called to bring a hope to a bitterly disappointed world. Everything we are about must be about hastening the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the answer for a sin-sick, sinking world. Now is the time. Now is the time to lift up Jesus. Now is the time to pour all of our resources, both physical resources, financial resources. There's an offering here on Sabbath. There are exhibitors over there. There's ministries like One Day Church and Voice of Prophecy and It Is Written Canada. God is calling us now to finish the work, to pour everything in and lift Him up because it is only He who has the answers. It is only Him. Why Adventist? Why now? Because we have been given the unique opportunity to be God's last day messengers. That Jesus is alive in the sanctuary, which is the headquarters of the universe, with one mission. To save mankind. Friends, are you committed to sending that message today? 
I'm going to begin ASI this year by making a call. And I'm going to make a call, and as, as this song is played here, it's a very simple call, three very specific people. And so I'm going to invite us to stand together. That makes it easier for us to come forward that want to. It's not a general recommitment. But friend, maybe you're someone here who came to ASI and you've been suffering bitter disappointment personally. I'm going to invite you to come forward so some of the pastors, some of the ASI leadership can have prayer with you. Maybe you're a lay person who hasn't always been the sweet fruitfulness of Jesus. And you need to come forward and make a commitment today to say, today it changes. I'm going to allow the Holy Spirit to work in me and change me. Maybe you're a pastor or a church leader that needs to recommit today and recommit to the model that Jesus has put forth. A model of the clergy and the laity coming together. As he hideth my soul is played, I'm going to invite you to come forward right down here in the front so we can have special prayer for you. a beautiful group. Praise the Lord. Shall we bow our heads as we pray to our God? Our precious Heavenly Father, we give you honor and praise for you are our God because in you we have a beautiful hope, that blessed hope of your second coming. Father, we want to unite as a church we want so much to finish the work that you have commended for us to do. But we need the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And tonight, we're asking very humbly, Lord, send your Holy Spirit. Please, Father, fill us up that we will be able to go out and preach the gospel, preach that truth that you have given to us, to give to others. Bless each person that has come forward in their desire to unite in the finishing of the work. Father, hear our prayer, for we ask it in the wonderful and precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.